Welcome to Garden Views. Interesting conversations with interesting people who have done and or are doing interesting things. So sit back and enjoy. Welcome everyone into Garden Views. And this week we are joined by Nathan Johnson. Nathan is one of the founders. He's also the executive director and a member of the board of directors for a not-for-profit called the Space Foundation. Now, for those of you who are in my field, we say not-for-profit sort of drives me a little crazy. A tax-exempt entity. Um, yes, you can make a profit. Uh, in any event, that's not the subject of this show. The subject, it should be obvious, is the Space Course Foundation and what they're doing, what the group is trying to do. And looking at their table of contents, it looks like we've done some of the same, well, we've been trying to do some of the same stuff on the show. We is me and my guests. Um, but Nathan, thank you so much for joining us. Tell the folks a little bit about yourself, your biography, and tell us about the, the Space Court Foundation. Well, first, thank you, Jeff. Thank you for having me on. Um, no, I'm excited to talk about the Space Court Foundation. Um, our our uh, encapsulated tagline: uh, We do say nonprofit. I apologize. It's okay. Nonprofit educational foundation promoting space law and policy and the rule of law. Um, and it's a topic that I got into. Um, I, I'd say actually before law school. It's the reason I went to law school was to study space law and policy. Um, my background before law school is actually in television and film. Um, I, I graduated with a TV film degree. Uh, I moved out to LA and I was working in LA for, uh, for three to four years. Um, and, um, you know, LA is a grind mm -hmm. and, uh, my writing career was not going very far. Unfortunately, this was a period of time where uh, science fiction was actually dormant on TV, uh, and that was my genre, of course. Um, but I, I really got interested in what was then the burgeoning new space industry. So this was around 2010, and I remember distinctly uh, then President Obama gave a speech at Kennedy Space Center about his administration's continuation of what was called the Commercial Cargo Program. This is where SpaceX and others were going to develop cargo vehicles uh, for delivery to the International Space Station. Um, and the Obama administration was continuing the program as had been started under previous President Bush. Um, but they were also going to continue that program into commercial crew. And we were going to see a new era of, you know, commercial human spaceflight. And I got really excited about it, got really interested in it. Um, and I had, I probably already had a predisposition uh, to going to law school, but now I had a good excuse for it. <laughs> um, and I had what some may see as a cynical thought. Well, I bet the more private companies there are involved with space exploration, the more lawyers they're going to need. You bet. Uh, so, you know, I found a way for myself to contribute. I liked thinking about the policy implications of what had been historically a government-led effort 
and what were going to be the mechanisms to enable a transfer of that control of the industry to the private market. Um, and I, I really liked learning about what already existed, getting involved and in, in realizing that there was a path forward for me in law school, um, you know, especially since I did not have an engineering undergrad degree. I couldn't go be a rocket engineer, um, but I could be a space lawyer. Um, and, that, and that's how I got involved or that's how I, I decided to go to law school for it. And so in law school, I look for ways to get involved in the community and in the field. And one of those was through participation in the International Institute of Space Law's moot court competition, uh, where I met a lot of my peers and uh, a term I learned a few years ago, near peers. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, just want to take a moment to say, honestly, near peers have been the biggest help in my career is those people who are just like two to three years ahead of me, um, who have the lay of the land, who know what the market looks like at that time and who know where those, those early entrance, entrance opportunities are. Um, so, you know, the moot court competition was a, a really big, uh, boost for me in, in law school and, and figuring out how to enter the field after I graduate. Um, but also just trying to be uh, at every conference that was available. I went to, I was lucky enough to go to law school in DC. And so um, in terms of national and even international events, uh, there was always a lot going on there. So I could be at conferences, obviously pre COVID time, uh, in-person events. Um, my explicit goal was just to be seen at every event until people thought that I just belonged in the, in, in that area. Um, and you know, there was a lot going on back in the early 2010s and there's even more going on now. Um, there's more opportunities for, for people to get involved. The field is growing. The interest is growing. Um, and you know, as evident by your invitation to me to be on this podcast, uh, the discussion about space law is growing. So, you know, it's just an exciting thing to talk about. It reminds me of a, a New Yorker cartoon with a character who said, let me steer the conversation to my area of expertise. <laughs> exactly. Well, a couple things come to mind. Uh, one, I think that you should have do warning if you haven't listened to any of the other Garden Views episodes on space. I do come at this with a bit of a, you yourself said that you were a bit of a cynic. I come at it at a view with, you have to plan for the Bond villain. So, you know, uh, you know, I, I, I put out these scenarios with Bond villains and, you know, sometimes I would call out real life people, you know, like Elon Musk is, you know, doing his thing. And I decided to, you know, stop doing that. And, and, uh, you know, and I've created a straw man country called Jeff Zikistan ruled by me, of course. Um, which is a noble country, but we might make it a liability haven for, you know, for, for spacefaring countries or industries. We, we may make it like you flag in Panama, whatever your, your ships of registration. Um, we might make it so that your space debris, that you are immune, you know, things like that to make it attractive to fund my little island nation or, or uh, landlocked nation. It doesn't matter. You don't need to know where it is. Um, 
but just uh, as as sort of an extreme example of things that actually happen in things like shipping and and you know we we've had uh, you know we had Holly Deramus talk about the law of the sea. We had admiralty and maritime attorneys. I've had an air traffic controller on talk about that. I had an airport manager. Uh, come on to talk about airport management. I've had an immigration attorney talk about diplomatic statuses and in international organizations. And I only point all of that because on your table of contents on things you're looking at, a lot of that stuff is sort of there or embedded into it. But another thing I want to, I want to warn you about is, you know, I, I read your stuff. So I see your co-founder is Chris. It's probably pronounced Hersey. Um, but of course, when you're a lawyer, you see hearsay, hearsay, and then when you're talking about space, which is science, then you see heresy. So I see both <laughs> of those things. Um, I also saw your animated series is called Stellar Decisis, which is clever, but I would have gone with Starry, like Starry, Starry Night Decisis. Um, that way it's a- We thought that that was too, that was too on the nose, and then you would have to explain to people Starry spelled- like the legal one or starry spelled like starry night. When you say stellar decisis, you don't have to follow up with how do you spell that? Which version of, of the word do you mean? Um, we, th- we thought those things through, but to the point, like, every lawyer that we presented it to has gotten the pun right away. So. <laughs> That's fine. And for those, I mean, I, I can't imagine someone stumbled upon garden views without, you know, knowing something about the law, but starry decisis is basically the proposition that, past decisions should be upheld and should be respected for present and future decisions. Um, doesn't always occur, but let's leave those things on the table. But generally speaking, that, that's that's what stare decisis is. So it's it's a clever lawyer joke. Um, I say the answer to your problem is always a silent P, but okay. Um, so you have a lot of partner organizations. And it's it's a pretty impressive list. You've got For All Moonkind, you've got Northumbria University in Newcastle Law School, the Open Lunar Foundation, International Space University, the IISL, the International Institute of Air and Space Law, National Cyber and Telecommunications Law, College of Law. There's an N there. I don't know if that's Nebraska. I'm not sure. Um, there's yeah. some, what's that? Yep, that's Nebraska. All right, Cornhouses, good for you guys. Uh, there's one that's too small for my old eyes to read, um, but I, I also watched your orientations and you had people from the satellite industry, you had people from other countries, you had someone who was like on the chair of the Caribbean Asso- Space Association, um, attorneys from Italy and, and uh, Africa. And it, it was, you know, it's just, a, it's like an amazing worldwide effort that you have to try to develop uh, basically just good space law for the, you know, so that there's a, a rule of order, a rule of law going forward. And I think that's great. And it's really smart because you're starting with, with students. And so you're going to, you're going to give interns to employers. So they're getting free labor, but skilled labor in areas that, that you want. So you are arrived. You, you're in the room now. You're in every room. You're, you're like the, you're like the middleman. Yeah, no, we, we definitely wanted to, to be part of the conversation and, you know, I, I have a day job and in my day job, I, I'm an uh, in-house attorney for a satellite company, but I had these other academic and big picture interests. And that was one of the reasons um, why I co-founded the Space Corps Foundation. Um, and, you know, the Space Corps Foundation, we, we sort of have three main pillars of what we do. Um, and one of them is research. We do original research on primary space law documents 
um, in terms of collecting documents. Uh, we have a committee that works on big books of national space law uh, from multiple countries. Um, we uh, are working on updating definitions of space law terms. Uh, and you know, we hope to have a whole online library of, of these space law documents. So research is one of our pillars, but the second pillar is, is mentorship. Like you said, we have a class of interns um, you know, I think we're going to be upwards of, of 30 interns worldwide. Um, we sort of went live as a foundation during the pandemic. So we are sort of natively remote and that enables us to do these things, um, you know, across the globe and have interns from multiple different countries, advisors from different countries, which is really a benefit to a topic like space law, which is international and global in scope. And then the third pillar of what we do is communication. We try to develop content to communicate these ideas um, to our community or space legal community and also broader to the general audience. And so that's why, um, you know, we did uh, a couple of different concept pilots last summer. Um, the first one you mentioned, Stellar Decisis, an animated show about a future fictional court in space um, trying to adjudicate claims related to space activities um, you know and you talked about sort of the hypothetical bond villain um, <laughs> in stellar decisis uh, we don't have it in the first episode but we also have a, a hypothetical um, litigant uh, who we, whom we call rocket man mm -hmm. um, and uh, you know he's out there wildcatting and, and doing different things on the, the Martian frontier. Um, but, you know, Stellar Decisis is, is made to try to draw, literally, uh, out what would the application of laws to space activities look like, and, and how is that going to be deliberated? And, you know, for the most part, we exclusively use existing law, even though these court cases, hypotheticals take place 50 years in the future. Um, and then we have real legal experts um, act as the judges. And, you know, the bulk of the episode takes place in the judges' chambers, with these real legal experts in character, but applying real law to, to our space dispute hypotheticals. And in our first episode, we had president of the court, um, Alyssa Adagi, who is a professor at uh, Harvard Law School. Uh, we have Professor David Koplow from Georgetown University Law Center, uh, who's written a, who's written the article on use of nuclear deterrence on um, asteroids. Yep, he, and, he was um, on the show for listeners. The, the episode is called The Proof is with the Prof. So that was David <laughs> Koplow just a couple of weeks ago. Um, and, and he's great. And then we had one of our, our foundation advisors, Chris Newman from Northumbria University, uh, who's also a noted uh, international space law scholar. And so Stellar Decisis is, is you know, one of those communication vehicles to try to show people what it's really like to apply existing laws, including space laws, but also general public international law um, to the future of space activities. Where can people and see it? Where can people watch uh, Stellar? YouTube channel. Mm -hmm. is uh, youtube.com forward slash Space Corp Foundation. Um, and if they go there, they'll see Stellar Decisis. They'll also see our other pilot concept called the Space Bar Show, 
which I uh, always proudly preface, really is a space law and policy comedy variety show. <laughs> well, <laughs> um, you, you can judge the success on your own, but you know we we are trying multiple different formats to communicate these ideas again to to space law individuals specifically, but also to the broader general public. Well, I have some questions on this actual area because this is something I haven't gotten to yet. Uh, I haven't even really made serious inquiries yet about it, but uh, I don't know if I'll be successful or not. But uh, I wanted to talk to some international law enforcement people, maybe someone from Interpol or the FBI or whatever. Um, but law enforcement, as, as you posit, you have a court somewhere in space, but you know, we don't wake up one day and all of a sudden there's a court. There's, there's going to be an evolution. So, you know, the, the only thing I can think of is it's sort of like the old West that you would have sort of a traveling magistrate with marshals, uh, you know, and maybe your space court is actually a ship, a vessel from time to time, you know, until there's a location and then locations, um, you know, obviously there won't be that many locations, period. You, you're probably talking about the moon, then Mars, then, then maybe, you know, some moons of some other planets. I mean, that'll be slow, too, but uh, probably having the, I'll just call it the magistrate, the judge, doesn't matter. I'll say space magistrate because I like that term. So, like... How do you envision there being some sort of fair space magistrate? How are they going to enforce it without bailiffs or space marshals? And how do you enforce laws created on Earth outside of the atmosphere with non-governmental actors who may well be leading? Uh, there may be more non-governmental actors out there than governmental actors out there. I think I think that's a good question. It's well, it's about thinking fifty. About, <laughs> thinking about it in terms of you know scaling the amount of activity, um, and for the most part, what's in the current set of treaties and international agreements is um, is quiet on that part. Um, so we haven't really, as an international community written out a framework for how to handle that scale of human activity. What we do have are the, the foundations of space law, which is basically that every sovereign, every nation state that is a party to the Outer Space Treaty is responsible for the authorization and continuing supervision of its nations in space activities. So... There's no international interpol system, but solar pole, sol pole. <laughs> but every country would be responsible for figuring out if we're sending a crew out into space, we've got to we've got to have some sort of, of way to to adjudicate what they do uh, and to supervise what they do. So a it ends up being just a responsibility of each individual nation state. You know, the second part is that, uh, again, under the Outer Space Treaty, uh, any space objects launched uh, remain under the jurisdiction of that launching state. So um, if you had a one-nation space station, it would be pretty clear which country is going to be responsible, which laws are going to apply on that station. So it's the geography of where the launch takes place, not where the 
ship is from not it doesn't matter whether if it's a doesn't matter that it's a russian ship if it took if it took off in cape canaveral it, the us is is responsible uh unfortunately no it's kind of muddy there you could potentially have both nations involved uh in bearing some sort of responsibility uh with that um but where we can clear that up again by example is something like the international space station the international space station rather than a treaty um, is sort of governed by a contract and in the contract among the different nations that participate in the international space station they agree to the terms of whose nations apply on which modules who's going to take responsibility for what and how do they adjudicate sort of a chain of command and who's going to resolve disputes on the station that you know need to be resolved right away and can't wait for people to be returned down to earth so where you have just one country on something that's pretty clear where you have multiple countries involved you know the first thing we would look to to see is there's some sort of contractual relationship that lays this all out you know and in terms of the space magistrate or space bailiffs um you know non-governmental actors we don't quite know but we do know that in the examples of governmental actors like the international space station the commander on the station has you know the ultimate role and responsibility of of sort of enforcing um the chain of command and adjudicating those sorts of disputes that's the closest we've come to uh, seeing that enacted on an international level so it's sort of a hybrid of an embassy situation with powers of the captain of a ship kind of i think that's exactly right okay i have a couple of follow-ups on that uh, and, and one is just a point that sounds like Jeff Zikistan is back in business. So that that's good because it sounds like some loopholes there that we can exploit in our evil Bond villain efforts to enrich ourselves and then take over the, the, the solar system. But aside from Jeff Zikistan and its evil machinations, um, I have a serious question in there, which is, you know, there are private space actors and... Listen, I, I don't I don't know where they're necessarily incorporated or, or organized, but I do know that, for instance, we hear people say, you know, Amazon is the one of the richest companies in the world, but Amazon pays no taxes in the United States. And I presume that's because Amazon's corporate headquarters, at least on paper, is is, is not in the United States. But you know, probably if if you were to ignore legality, you know, the, the legal fictions of the world and just use your eyes, you'd probably say, yeah, they're, they're, they're mostly in the United States, um, but but yet they're not subject to taxation. So I'm assuming that that's correct. They're not paying taxes and that they're organized, say, in Switzerland or Grand Cayman or something. Um, what does that matter? Well, you know, we have Blue Origin, which is by Bezos. Now, let's say that Blue Origin is also organized in Grand Cayman, not the United States. And, but they build most of their stuff in the United States, but they launch their stuff out of, you know, let's just say off the United States. Uh, I mean, you'd think that there'd be a contract involved as well or to establish liability. But I mean, is that how that works? That the U.S. says, hey, Blue Origin, if you want to launch from the United States, you have to submit to these rules and regulations. And Blue Origin says, 
Yes, we will. And we, we submit to the jurisdiction of the United States, uh, e- even for our activities outside of the Earth's atmosphere. So there, there is, you know, especially in the, the example of the United States, um, the United States is a signatory to the Outer Space Treaty, which means that they have to authorize and continuously supervise the space activities of its nationals. And the U.S. Congress um, decided to enact that through legislation which requires the licensing of launches and then later re-entries um, from the United States. And so, yes, any company that is going to launch uh, into space uh, from the United States or re-enter uh, into the United States from space has to apply for a license um, to the FAA's Office of Commercial Space Transportation. So there are laws about um, needing a license for it, the parameters, um, financial obligations in the event of uh, third-party liability, um, and regulations for you know general safety uh, as well. So yeah, you know when uh, Blue Origin launches from Van Horn, Texas. SpaceX launches from uh, Cape Canaveral, um, you know, they do so uh, with a launch license from the FAA. Now, what if they ever find a country? So let's just call it Jeff Zikistan again. Um, And Jeff Zikistan says, you don't need a license. You you pay our fee, you can launch your ship. Um, You know, and, and, you know, you're organized in Grand Cayman, as far as we know. Uh, so that's fine. Grand Cayman's responsible. And Grand Cayman's no, no, you're, you're launching off Jeff Zikistan. What happens then if the Blue Origin, let's just let's just say that part of the payload falls out. Nobody gets hurt, you know, it, but it causes property damage. We'll try to come up with the least, you know, sinister outcome. Um, sort of like that thing that happened in Australia where they sent a, a fine for $400. Um, yeah. So... What would happen there? And again, I'm just using Jeff Sikistan because I, I don't want to use, I want to minimize the use of real countries in any of this. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but we'll pretend it's a real country. So what, what would happen in that? I mean, I, I still have, I, you know, you might remember that some years ago, there was actually a case in federal courts where some guy sued Satan and a federal judge, you know, I guess wanted to get rid of it but basically said, hey, Satan is not uh, a human being is not subject to the laws of Earth. So there's a federal case out there that says Satan's not subject to the laws of Earth. Is that the same as once you're outside of Earth, you're not subject to the laws of Earth? It's not exactly the same, but it's not exactly not. So, you know, once you leave the atmosphere, the Canaan line or whatever, whatever, whatever it is, you know, how do the laws of Earth apply when you're no longer on Earth? So... I think one of the helpful things, and I, I, I gave myself the task of, of figuring out, you know, what is space law? You know, what's, what's the, the, the single most condensed way to describe exactly what the scope of that is when we talk about it? And I just want to remember all my carefully chosen words. But, you know, I think of space law as um, the laws pertaining to how nations on earth interact with each other 
in regards to activities in space. Okay. So, and so to me, the important part is the hook, right? If un, until you are completely independent of life on earth, there's a hook for you back on the ground somewhere. Right. And it's that hook, which extends the national law and international legal system to you in space, right? So until we get to the expanse and Mars declares its independence, you know, we're still going to be dealing with how do these nations on Earth interact with each other, you know, especially with regards to all the problems and trouble and grief caused by, you know, their their wild nationals gallivanting about space. Well, I, I don't want to give you a bigger headache. Um, and, and, you know, again, if, if you want to say this is, sort of, this is sort of outside of the scope of, of our mission today, that's fine also. But I, I would say we're almost at something similar to the expanse or maybe worse. And that is that, you know, let's just say Shmilan Nusk uh, got to Mars first and pulled a Marvin Martian and said, I declare this uh, planet on behalf of Shmilan Nusk who is not at all related to a real person on Earth. Um, and Shmilan Musk, or Nusk, rather, excuse me, uh, got there with three platoons of, you know, former Air Force commandos uh, who now are private security and has, you know, the only armed force of 103 people on planet Mars, which now is renamed Planet Noli um, or Planet Tesla. Um, and, who, you know, who who... And he says, you know, forget about all my stuff there. I'm, I'm, I've shipped all my cryptocurrency over here through the through the internet. I was trailing my satellites the whole way around, uh, and cryptocurrency is the only currency we we recognize here on planet Noli. Come do something about it, uh, or don't. I don't care. You know, <laughs> I mean, is is that like way beyond something that 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 you want to think about? Because I know that I made it sound extreme, but it's not that. It, 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 it's not that unprecedented that somebody gets there first and says, this is mine. So I think in terms of practicalities, I don't think we're close to having to imagine that yet. Like again, total self-sufficiency on another planet is still a ways away, right? You, we're still envisioning there would be, need to resupply, um, you know, any, any human habitations off earth. Um, but you know, beyond that, it's also sort of a political question, right? Um, sort of the real politic of it. Um, what are you going to do about it? But, you know, for the most part, the practicalities of it are, are still a long ways off. Um, I will say though, that these are the types of questions that we are trying to entertain. Um, with some of our uh, media content at the Space Corps Foundation. Um, we are already in the writing stages for new episodes of Stellar Decisis. And one of those episodes deals with the diplomatic status of a Martian nation state. And if they're, uh, you know, chief executive uh, were to be on Earth and detained on Earth, will the nations on Earth be forced to recognize 
this person's diplomatic status if they said that they were representing a sovereign nation on Mars. Um, so that actually is going to be the basis of, of one of our next episodes. Well, that's close enough. So that that's good. That's great. Uh, it sounds it sounds like I'm eligible. You know, I'm I'm internship material. So that's good. <laughs> thirty thirty years too late, but anyway. Um, so okay, we, we take late in career transitions, mid career transitions. Yeah, mm. absolutely. Well, 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 since my firm sometimes uses the. Uh, the, the podcast, I probably shouldn't say that I'm interested, but <laughs> I don't know. I'm not, not interested, but I, I more want to be the space magistrate with the marshals than, than actually doing much thinking. Um, so, you know, uh, and I know that the job of magistrate requires thinking, but you know, I want the power than the thinking. Um, all right. So there are some other things here. So we have, uh, you know, there, there's sovereignty over celestial bodies, which I think we sort of, have touched upon, but you can certainly clarify it uh, in in a sec. We I think we talked a little bit about space vehicle regulations, but I think that definitely merits some clarification from you. Space communications, uh, I imagine, is embedded with satellites a lot, but maybe not just alone. Um, and uh, actually, I think we touched on a lot of the issues, but probably not in enough detail. So just going by on, on page eight of your Haley project, um, you list 12 items. So I, I'm sort of like looking at uh, four through um, nine, uh, but really all of them. I mean, I guess if you could touch on all, you know, all of them and, and also tell me what is meta law? <laughs> well, so, so what you're referencing, these, these 12 chapters, um, these 12 chapters are the topics as defined Topics of space law as defined back in 1963 by a fascinating historical figure named Andrew G. Haley, who was, for all intents and purposes, the very first practicing space lawyer. Um, he was, uh, before World War II, he was involved in uh, radio communication law and the FCC. Um, he actually had the title of Kentucky Colonel of the Ether. Um, that's the same commission uh, as Colonel Sanders, how we get Kentucky Fried Chicken. Um, so he was involved in, in terrestrial radio law. But then during World War II, um, he was asked to help out a defense contractor uh, at the time. And he was given the choice of either going to Southern California to help this defense contractor or being stationed in Iceland. And he chose sunny Southern California. Mm -hmm. So as a lawyer, he helped uh, establish the foundations for the Aerojet Corporation. So he goes from radio law to actual rocket manufacturing. And after World War II, becomes interested in the legal and policy questions around the new space age. And so he develops and writes articles and gets involved in the international community in the 1950s. Um, he helps establish a number of international organizations that are still around today, like the International Astronautical Federation, the International Institute of Space Law the International Academy of Astronautics, um, lots of I's and A's. 
And he also toured with the Prince of Hanover uh, on a lecture circuit in the late 1950s, talking about space law. Prince of Hanover, who also got the first doctorate in space law. Oh. And so by 1963, Haley's been around. Haley's been in the formative years of all these laws and policies, and he compiled all of his writing and also sort of summarizing the work of his contemporaries in this book called Space Law and Government. And that's how we get these these 12 chapters touching on all of these topics of space law that are still relevant today and which are going to be the focus of the Space Corp Foundation's um, upcoming um, months-long project. We're actually going to be embarking starting in late September on a 14-month series. Each month, we're going to update a chapter of his book, and we're going to have panels of current thought leaders and academics um, and experts talk about each of these topics and tell us how these topics have progressed over the past 60 years. Um, so, you know, I can touch on a few of these, but, you know, it's amazing how much work Haley and people, you know, 60 years ago had already put into these things um, and how much of that is still relevant today. And, you know, you referenced earlier uh, the Von Karman line, um, you know, it's still one of the easiest ways to think of a delineation between airspace and outer space. But um, not to blow your mind, but A, there is no agreed upon enforceable international standard for where airspace ends and outer space begins. Ah, None. Well, that's going to make it difficult. <laughs> or yeah, easy. Everybody uses their own, right? The FAA gives astronaut wings for people who fly above the Von Karman line. Um, you know, the U.S. Air Force defines, you know, for their do domain awareness and jurisdiction uh, where, where it begins and ends. But in terms of international law, there's no agreed upon specific measurement. Well, how and far? The second thing is how far the is Von Karman line. Yeah. It's not even a specific line. It changes depending on the aerodynamics of the vehicle. So the Von Karman line has itself been misapplied over over history. So you know it's it's handy enough, but um, you know as we push the limits of activities, you know hot air balloons. Um, Google had a project, Project Loon, where they were going to do basically what Starlink is doing now except they were going to do it much lower in altitude using hot weather balloons. You know, yep. like would, would, would have that have pushed everybody to try to figure out this line between national space and, and outer space? Maybe. Yeah, I it's, think so. It's one of those un, unfinished, unfinished things. Yeah, because, I mean, you know, you uh, countries have jurisdiction over their airspace, and I guess the question is where does your airspace and, and I guess pretty much everyone's agreed by, yeah, where are satellites at 22,000 miles or is it kilometers? So I think it's 62 kilometers. Okay. Is, is one of the handy ones. You know, when you talk to engineers, though, it becomes more helpful to think, you know, airspace is probably 
wherever you can still have the Bernoulli effect to actually lift your aircraft. Outer space is probably where you don't have enough atmosphere to actually create lift under a plane's wings. No lift. Gotcha. Um, okay. Yeah. So e- even that is, is not clear. And at some point there'd have to be some agreement, even, even if it's not exactly technically cor- correct as to where earth ends and space begins. Yeah. All right. Well, I guess we could go by the Iron Man, Iron Man one, uh, you know, when he's, when the armor started freezing up, I guess that that's high enough. Um, all right. So that's interesting. And that, then that's, that is rough, but in some ways, I, I guess that makes cooperation maybe easier, maybe more essential to say, Hey, we, we can't even define this. So let, let's all agree so that we don't, you know, get into shooting wars up there. Yeah, I think that there is an element to that. Um, you know, Haley himself was an internationalist. He definitely saw the need for an international agreement on space law and policy cooperation. Um, this was also, you know, during the very beginning of the Cold War, and anything to increase transparency is a good thing. Um, and in fact, that that is one of the the central tensions that probably made the Outer Space Treaty possible. Outer Space Treaty was signed um, in January 1967. Um, And, you know, if you don't think about the historical context, the Outer Space Treaty has this particular focus on not installing nuclear weapons or weapons of mass destruction in space. But when you think about it in terms of the Cold War, Oh man, of course the UN and all the other countries on earth were like, how can we make sure that the US and Russia don't start putting nukes on satellites and just like have them hovering in space and telling the other country, I just press a button and this thing's going to drop right from a satellite onto your country. Like, how do we prevent that? Right. And so they pushed, they, they formed, they draft and push through this outer space treaty and a lot of it is really built around that sense of transparency, cooperation. Um, there's also a physical reality to space. You can't keep Earth hidden from space, and you can't keep what you put in space hidden from Earth. And so it's sort of de facto transparent, um, but it helps to put that in writing as well. There's a registration convention that elaborates on how you're supposed to register your objects in space especially so your home country can regulate it, but also submit that registry to the the UN so that there's awareness about what everybody's putting in space. Um, Cooperation is an aspect of it. There's also something called the uh, rescue and return agreement, meaning um, that the signatories will uh, help rescue each other's astronauts. And if your astronauts land in their territory, they will safely uh, return that astronaut to you. So, of course, you can understand, you know, wanting our Gemini or Apollo astronauts in case they had to crash land in Russia, wanting them to be safely returned to the U.S. and cosmonauts if they had to crash land in the U.S. being safely returned to Russia. Sure. Um, so, all those tensions are there, um, but you know, I think they resulted in a really good foundation in a, a really sort of Gene Roddenberry-esque goal of transparency and cooperation. Yeah. you. I mean, you're definitely hoping for a little bit more of the Star Trek 
uh, and less expanse, I guess, to, to, to use a, two, uh, two great science fiction extremes. But for those folks who aren't science fiction people, um, it, it sounds like we're counting a little bit on the good faith of others, uh, though when I spoke to Professor Coplo, and you have too, so I don't think it's, it's uh, bad that we invoke his name here. He suggested that, you know, that businesses and countries all do better when they sort of know what the rules are and they don't necessarily mind regulation so much. It's not their favorite thing, but they, as long as they know what the rules are, they, they'll figure out how to, you know, make the most of, of those rules. They like predictability. And, and at the end of the day, the shareholders and the investors and the money is, is coming from here. The taxes are coming from here. And, you know, it's, it's in everyone, in everyone's interests to behave rather well. Then I posited to him, and I, I guess I'm sort of positing to you, well, that's until somebody finds a $40 trillion asteroid that they can find, and then 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 the math gets different. Um, and But I don't expect the Space Court Foundation to be able to answer that today on, on my podcast. It's, it's again, the, is there any answer to a Bond villain? And I guess the answer is no, there's never really any answer to a Bond villain unless you've got, unless you're in a movie. Yeah, I think I think there's an element of, of that that's right, and um, you know the the we talked about Bond villains, and on Stellar Decisis we have Rocket Man. <laughs> um, we haven't talked about space James Bonds. Um, Stellar Decisis we don't have a space James Bond, um, but we do have a service processor who can literally give universal process. Um, he can find you anywhere in the galaxy and uh, certain papers. Yeah. Um, yeah. You're going to need space notaries for sure. Yeah. Yeah, you definitely you're def- you need logistics. Logistics are key. Whoever, whoever opens the first uh, logistics operation will be there. When I, when I was talking to Matt Williams, we were talking about, uh, you know, how, how do you terraform Mars and build, you know, or moon anywhere? And, you know, I made a joke about, you know, well, whoever opens the first John Deere dealership up there. And I said, ah, check that. The first John Carpenter Deere dealership up there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, um, yeah, we're, like you said, we're not there yet, but it, I'm glad there's people like you thinking about it. Um, you know, not just me, though, you know, everyone wants to think that they're special and they're the first, but it's good that there's actually foundations and academic groups and business groups, uh, you know, that are thinking about this, including inter- intra- international uh, you know, qu- governmental agencies involvement in, in thinking about things like this as well. Uh, Cause I think you're right. It, it's, it, it's going to have to be like the, the UN a little bit on steroids with, without the might that everyone has to agree, you know, th- this, this is an arms race that, that nobody can possibly win. We all have to sort of behave ourselves, you know, maybe, maybe Antarctica is, is a, and I did the show on Antarctica with this in mind that Antarctica may be the, the, closest parallel, um, even though it's here on terra firma. Yeah. You know, in terms of comparison, comparison for, for space law, cause we have very few adjudicated space law cases, right? The, the starry decisis of space law is actually kind of thin. We have yeah. lots of, you know, state action and opinions, but we don't, we don't have those cases decided. So we have to do a lot of comparison. And you're exactly right. Um, Antarctica is a, a huge point of comparison. 
um, for space law. Maritime law, again, another big type of comparison for, for space law as well. Well, good. We did shows on those things. So folks, if you want to listen to, to those shows, check those out to get a little bit more of the basis. And yes, I played Bond villain in, in most of those shows as well, including the one on Admiralty with the Longshoreman's Act and Jones Act, which are just federal labor laws for certain classes of uh, uh, of labor involved in ports and uh, seafaring journeys. I haven't gotten around to aviation yet beyond the air traffic controllers and airports themselves, but you know, I, I didn't realize, I knew this was an avocado, but I didn't realize it was an onion. And they, they would just keep being more and more layers. And, and and there are, and it's sort of driving me crazy because uh, I didn't intend this project to be the rest of my life. And it very well might be. Uh, on the other end of things, well, I always have something to try to book, you know. <laughs> you know, there's, there's always there's always other guests I can try to get, including like satellite insurance people uh, and things like that. But you're in a satellite company, so you know all about that. Um, so let's talk a little bit about satellites. I mean, what what is it that, that that us Earthbound people need to know about satellites, and how is it that Starlink can go up? And you know, it's just sort of like somebody said, I'm putting up all these satellites, and you know. That's what's happening. It's it's for your own good, and we're doing it. And you know, it it seems like no one can really stop it. No one's really sure if they want to. Some people, of course, think that you know it's gonna, you know, it's the new world order and all that other good stuff. But assuming that it's not, like, how does that happen? Aside from someone being wealthy, like, how how do you get how do you get it that you can put up twelve thousand satellites just because you decide you're going to put up twelve twelve thousand satellites? Well, you know, I think one of the biggest I don't know if it's a misconception but one of the biggest things that in our communication to the general audience we have to get across is usually that like things are not lawless in space at least not yet you know the FCC does regulate satellites you know you mentioned one of the chapters in Haley's book is on space communications and in terms of private commercial endeavors Communication satellites um, are one of the earliest sort of industry segments that is, you know, almost purely commercial. And so it's because of the radio signals that satellites need in order to communicate with the ground that sort of gives the FCC its hook. And that's how the FCC gets involved with regulating satellites. So, um, you know, Starlink... Um, not just because it's a satellite, but also because it's a satellite that's specifically designed to deliver signals back down to the ground. Um, Starlink is regulated by the FCC. They have to get an FCC license to use those radio signals. Um, they have to get an FAA license in order to be able to launch. And actually, in both cases, uh, it gives the U.S. government the opportunity to ask the sort of questions about how is this space activity going to affect U.S. liability and U.S. national security um, and how the U.S. has to interact with the other countries uh, on Earth because its nationals are putting up, as you said, 12,000 satellites into space. That is going to need to be, you know, supervised in some way not you know nanny state or anything like that but you can't just put up 12,000 satellites and not try to you know 
keep track of them or ask that, you know, they be operated in a way that is conducive to the safety of the orbital environment so that all the countries and all the businesses that are up there can also safely operate their satellites, but so that it doesn't, you know, rain down debris uh, across the globe. So it is regulated. Um, and, you know, in communicating that to people, that it's not completely lawless, um, if people want to take more action, if individual citizens want to get involved with the way the government is regulating space activities, you know, redirect that interest to the places where it's actually being done. The FCC, uh, the FAA, U.S. Congress passes laws about it. You know, there, it, there is a way for non space engineers, lawyers, companies, everyday citizens to get involved with space, Excellent. including space law and policy. Um, I want to be respectful of your time. We're running close to the hour. Is there any difference between the regulatory scheme b b between space tourism travel and, and any other space commercial travel, whether it be mining or or any, any exploration or does it not matter. It's, it's commercial space travel is or private space travel is treated this the same uh, regardless of the purpose, except for maybe intra. You know, obviously you might have more liability waivers for tourism, but from a regulatory governmental standpoint. So you know, at the Space Corps Foundation, we say our role is that of a court. We're there to take notice and create the record. Right? We don't uh, necessarily advance. Um, specific policy proposals, but you know, if your audience wants to to look about where you know the next emerging segment of space law is going to be and where people are putting out those proposals, right now domestic regulation is really good at using the hook of whatever gets launched or whatever comes back is regulated. What's not clearly regulated yet is that in between part, all of that in space part. So there's not a direct hook on that, right? So mm -hmm. if you're talking about space tourism, because those people have to get launched into space and ideally return from <laughs> space, right. that's regulated. That's regulated under you know the launch and individual states try to raise to pass their own liability measures. And then there was talk of federal preemption on that. There's a hook for that. What there's not a hook for is that stuff that happens once you are in space. You can have government review you know, launches have payload reviews, um, but in terms of specific regulation, specific jurisdiction for on-orbit or in-space activities, that is where we will see new activity. Gotcha. Does Space Corps Foundation uh, have any involvement, and I even mean theoretical, academic, obviously, in sort of military, private, sort of dual-use um, functions? So, you know, in terms, again, of, of um, creating a record and taking notice of things, um, part of our research um, when we're putting together big books of national space law would include any national laws that have to do with the regulation of space hardware, um, space assets, um, and yeah, that would include, you know, export control, dual-use dual goods. We definitely uh, include that in our research because it does clearly affect space activities. Okay. Thank you for that. All right. Uh, 
We only have about five minutes left, so I want you to tell people where they can find information on the Space Court Foundation, how they can support Space Court Foundation, how they can apply if they want to be an intern or anything else. Anything else that you want to tell us, how they can find this group yourself, how they can follow you, etc. Um, yeah, so you know we have a YouTube channel, youtube.com forward slash Space Court Foundation. Uh, please like and subscribe. Um, we have a year's worth of programming already on our channel, uh, videos including on the Artemis Accords, uh, on space arbitration, uh, and we're going to be launching a, a new multimedia program this fall, the Haley Project, so you can also see those on uh, our YouTube channel. We're also on Patreon if you want to support us, patreon.com forward slash spacecourtfdn, multiple tiers to get involved. Um, you can also straight up donate to us. We're on PayPal giving, um, and you can follow us on social media. Typically we're space court, FDN, uh, Twitter, Instagram, uh, LinkedIn. Um, we, you know, appreciate, uh, the audience and support that we've already garnered. And we hope to continue communicating about the very real field, uh, of space law and policy. Well, you, you'll always have a venue here for you or any of your board members or any of your partner organizations uh, to talk about any of these issues. Uh, obviously, uh, I keep peeling the onion and it sounds like, uh, well, you, you might have an onion farm there. So uh, <laughs> so this was a real pleasure for me. Thank you. It took us a little bit of a while to get here, but I think actually I was better positioned to have this interview with all that I've learned and all my exploration. So I think things worked out for a reason, but I thank you for never quite giving up on it. Um, and I, I wish you and your organization tons of luck. I think it's really, really exciting. I think any of you who are in the legal career or thinking about it, you know, just imagine if you were one of the first or second batches of attorney working for the British East India Company. Think what you like about what they did and, and you know, all of the ramifications. But I bet those lawyers ended up pretty rich. So, you know, if you want. So, uh, uh, you know, or, or think of all the good you can do by making sure that we don't cause colonialization and, eco, you know, environmental ravaging or, you know, whatever. And, uh, you know, you, you can make whatever you want of it, but you're in the ground floor of something that's new. So go at it. Go, go at it and be far out. Um, all right, Nathan, I don't know if you want to salvage what I just said and try and make it sound better. <laughs> no, thank you. Thank you so much Jeff, for having me on. Yeah, thank you again. All right, take care, everyone, and we will hear you next week in Garden she Juice. packed my bags last night pre-flight Zero hour, 9 a.m. And I'm gonna be high as a kite by then. I miss the earth so much, I miss my life. It's lonely out in space on such a time. I'm not the man they think I am at home
Just my job five days a 